You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA program in creative writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. My name is Melissa Rosenberg, and I created the Netflix series Marvel's Jessica Jones. Multiple Emmy nominee Melissa Rosenberg is series creator and showrunner of Marvel's Jessica Jones, starring Kristen Ritter. The show garnered tremendous response and critical acclaim, including winning the prestigious Peabody Award for its genre-bending approach. As one of Hollywood's most versatile, sought-after storytellers, Rosenberg is currently in an overall deal with Warner Brothers Television to develop new projects. Her company, Tall Girls Productions, focuses on developing and producing film and TV series with an emphasis on interesting, complex roles for women in front of and behind the camera. On the film side, Rosenberg's credits include all five screenplays for the vampire romance phenomenon The Twilight Saga, which grossed more than $3 billion worldwide. She also wrote the hit dance film Step Up, which launched a multi-film franchise. Additional television credits in Rosenberg's diverse range include four seasons as both head writer and executive producer of the Showtime original series Dexter, which earned multiple nominations and awards, including the Peabody Award. Netflix's original series, Marvel's Jessica Jones, chronicles the life of one of the darker Marvel characters. When a tragedy puts an end to her short-lived career as a superhero, Jessica settles in New York City and opens her own detective agency called Alias Investigations, which seems to be called into cases involving people who have special abilities. Suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, Jessica wants to do good, but her primary interest isn't in saving the world. It's paying rent and getting through each day. After I had finished writing the Twilight movies and had finished on Dexter and had a little more cred than I had done before, I went around town with my manager to various different network studios and they asked me what it is that I wanted to do next. I said I wanted to do a damaged, flawed female superhero, and ABC reached out to Marvel. Jeff Loeb was head of TV at Marvel at that time. He's an icon in the comic world. And Jeff brought me one, and only one, comic, and it was Jessica Jones. The original Jessica Jones, created by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos, was absolutely just some of the richest material I've ever come across. She was a complete character in the comics and she was exactly what I had asked for, a flawed, damaged female superhero. So we pitched it to ABC Network as a pilot for ABC Network. They jumped on and I wrote it. I said to them, have you read the comic? Because it's really dark. It really goes there. And they're like, oh, no, no, we want to do it. Then I wrote it and it was really dark. They said, can you lighten it up? So I I went back in and I made the the awnings of bright, cheery red and really superficial changes. So, you know, it did not get made. The only way to lighten that material is with humor and it just got quite a bit of that. But it's not a happy-go-lucky series. But Jeff Loeb shortly thereafter called me and he says, what are you working on? 
are you available? Something's happening with Jessica Jones. I said, yeah, you know, I will be. I'm sure by the time whatever it is is happening, just keep me posted. He says, I'll keep you posted. We'll know like within a couple months. Then, you know, a year goes by. <laughs> Jeff calls again. What are you doing? What are you, you know, what are you up to? Can you jump on Jessica Jones? Something's happening. I said, yeah, of course. You know, and, and this goes on, I don't know, three, at least three times, maybe more. And, and over the course of a couple, several years. Finally, it's in deadline Hollywood, the local trade, that Marvel Television, Jeff Loeb, and Netflix have made this huge deal for not just Jessica Jones, but for Marvel characters. Then Jeff calls me and says, it's happening. I'm like, okay, yeah, I figured that one out. I had the very best setup at Netflix, which is exactly where it needed to be. And I just, you know, didn't have to pitch it, didn't have to sell it. It was all done. I walked in. Thank you, Jeff Loeb. <laughs> After working on Twilight, Jessica Jones was actually somewhat of a relief. Because Twilight comes with the most rabid female audience. That you, man, you do not want to cross a tween girl. Let me tell you. They are very serious about Twilight. And you know, God forbid you should change a line of dialogue that was in the book or a location or a story, which of course I had to change a great deal of it. It was successful in spite of my butchering of the book, <laughs> but it was intimidating. It was really intimidating to adapt something that's so beloved. You really have to be true to it in so many ways. The great thing about doing Jessica Jones in the Marvel universe with their rabid fans is you know going in, you're going to have an audience. It's going to have that red Marvel logo in front of it, and people will tune in. They will watch it. You have to be entertaining enough for them to come back to it, but you'll at least get butts in the chair to begin with. The other side of that is you've got the Marvel fan base, and they are next to tween girls. They're scary as hell. <laughs> God forbid you should have the wrong reference to issue 312 of whatever book it is, you know. Fortunately with Jessica, she was not that well-known a character. The other Netflix series that Marvel was doing, like Daredevil and Luke Cage, Daredevil has a canon that's decades old, rabbit fan base. Creators of that show really had to go through a lot to satisfy Marvel and the fans. Jessica Jones, you know, people knew her. I think cool people knew her, but I think there were 22, 24 issues of Jessica Jones, and that was it. There's more now. So there was a certain amount of freedom I had in dealing with Jessica. Not only that, but she was the first female superhero, more or less. They'd done Agent Carter for ABC, but this is a very different series, different character, different world. And Marvel at the time was all male, it was very male, with few exceptions. If I took something in a certain direction, I could always fall back on the, well, are you telling me a, a woman wouldn't do that? Me, a woman? <laughs> it was a cheap boy. They saw through it, but it worked on occasion. <laughs> Writing is a practice. You have to show up whether you're having anything, you write anything good or not. It's painful. It's a painful process when you're just beginning. My writing is, it's a bit of a ritual to just show up every day. You know, you get your ass in your seat and you 
basic computer screen and you just start writing. I start surfing the web a little bit. You know, this is my warm up. I'm just warming up my fingers and the keyboard. I'm giving myself just a little kind of paratif. I pulled up the final draft document. It's there until finally I'm writing in it. I have to ease my way in and then I'm in it. It is very regimented, my life. It is about going to bed at certain times and waking up at certain times and then working out. I know what my writing window is when I'm at my strongest. If I need to be sitting in that chair, no later than, well, certainly no later than noon, but 11. And I need to stay sitting in that chair until about six. That's my window. I always begin with a cup of green tea. I'm happy when I get to have three cups of green tea before about 12.30 and I have to stop. I always have a Cliff Bar, peanut butter crunch. The hardest part of any movie, any storytelling anywhere, is starting with the blank page. That's part of why I like it, adapting things, is because at least even if I'm not sticking to the actual story, even if you have a title, you have more than you would if you're working on a blank page. So you start with this or the blank board and you just start bleeding. <laughs> you just start writing crap. And you're lucky if you write one good sentence or one good line of dialogue, you've written 10, 20 pages and one line of dialogue, you've succeeded. That's when I walk away. When I'm in, I'm in, I just go, I, you know, as I said, 10 or 11. And I just keep going. I, I don't break for lunch. I don't do any of that. That's when I'm actually writing your pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. When I'm writing a series, what I look at is where I want to begin the character, where I want to end the character. And then I start looking at what are all the stepping stones that get the character to that end zone and then you know the twists and turns. So the beginning of my process is to frame the house, if you will. When you're adapting a novel or a comic and you're using that story, that's what I'm pulling from is in the comic. Now, unfortunately for me, we went in a very different direction in terms of where a character went. We started in the same place, but went in different directions because the Marvel Universe, MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, had very clear lines in terms of what I could utilize from their canon and what stories I could not and what the world was. Jessica Jones had to be able to exist in the same MC universe that Iron Man, Thor, all those guys, Captain America existed in. Now, the tone of Jessica Jones is completely different than the tone of the MCU. You know, it's not the gleaming primary color. This is a much more grounded, real and gritty world. So to start introducing characters like Captain Marvel and all of that, you start breaking with reality as much as the superhero thing can be. Those were the guardrails on the freeway, if you will, of breaking this story. I started where the comic book started, which was center cutting Jessica's life. And the comic included the element of Kilgrave. He was less forefront, but he had all this makings of just a delicious villain. Kilgrave was played out slightly differently in the comics, went around the issue of rape a bit. And I looked at that and just sort of said, this shapes so much of her character. She failed as a superhero. So she just kind of got B-level powers. She's just trying to make a living. And so much of the storytelling is about just, you know, how do you pay rent? 
where do I get my next drink? These sort of things are very grounded and relatable. With all the emotional stuff that she deals with, there's a great deal of humor in it. It's very dark humor, but she always has a line. I love that about her. And the thing about Jessica Jones is, even in the comic, she was drawn as a normal-looking human being. I appreciated that about this particular comic. I had the good fortune, I had the great good fortune of when Jessica Jones shifted from network pilot to Netflix series, I was able to hire a writing room. I had an amazing team, television writers from every genre, at every level, very, very experienced to brand new. I was able to hand them the network draft and could then toss around with them ideas for how to make it a Netflix streaming series. But they really helped me break the pilot. Absolutely. Normally, you're kind of off in your own little, you know, hidey hole, breaking it on your own, banging your head against the wall. You know, but I was able to bang my head against seven other writers, which was an incredible blessing. The downside of that is you also have the pressure of putting something out there immediately so that they can write it as well. You've got, you know, there are seven writers who are sitting there needing something to do and you can't break the next episode. You can't do anything until you have a pilot in hand. So it was an enormous amount of pressure trying to write and create at the same time as having this pressure hanging over you and knowing that you've got seven people and a, a network in a limited amount of time and a studio all biting at the bit to get pages. I didn't have a nervous breakdown, but I came close. <laughs> and then, of course, you passed it. Once the pilot is done, you cast it. That changes everything as well. One of the first auditions we did was for Kristen Ritter, who absolutely nailed it. Then we felt like we had to do our due diligence, so we you know, read a bunch more actresses, some thought, and ultimately got through all those numbers and came back to Kristen Ritter. There's one line in episode two, written by Micah Schraft. There are these two weirdo upstairs neighbors and they're making noise and, you know, waking Jessica Jones up in the middle of her hangover pass out. She ends up slamming one against the wall and saying, I don't give a goddamn bag of dicks what noise you make. Just, I don't know, it's something about bag of dicks. And a lot of actresses came in. They had all the dramatic chops, you know, they would get to that line and, and it would be, you know, this very serious delivery of it. And that became the sort of, a litmus test for who could do Jessica Jones. If you could nail that, the, the humor in that line, you are on the list. And the list very quickly came down to one person who could not only deliver that line, but also the incredibly deep emotional places she had to go to. We were writing all the seasons of Jessica Jones. I think we had six out of 13 written when we started shooting. That's unheard of in network television. When you're doing network television, you're lucky if you have many pages written before you're shooting the next day. And I think that's why streaming took over the television so quickly. You have the time to do your best work. Time is quality and quality is time. When you're slamming stories out there, I've worked with writers who feel like that pressure and that your first draft is your best. And, it's like, it's not. I'm telling you, it's not. Having this time to explore a character or a scene or a story and go down all those wrong paths, that's how you find the right path. 
I think the, the best writing in my career was on Jessica Jones. Prior to that, it was Dexter because, again, that was basic cable, but it wasn't network. When I did Jessica Jones for network TV at ABC, I structured it so that it was a pace of the week. When we went to Netflix, Netflix is all about continuing storylines. The objective is to have an audience member want to binge it, watch the next one immediately. And there are no commercial breaks. So you don't have to, every 15 minutes, remind the audience of what they saw three minutes ago. There's a lot more depth in the storytelling. And you have to come up with more story. <laughs> you know, network, you're doing 42-minute episodes all said and done. And in Netflix, on streaming, you are at about 55 minutes. That's a lot of storytelling. The first thing we did in breaking the pilot in the season of Jessica Jones was to lean into the continuing storyline. So it was, rather than be one case a week, it was really one case for the entire season. And you might have a B or C story, you know, circling around the edges, but the A story really was this case of the week. The one case that was connected to Jessica and Kilgrave in that relationship and her history. So that was a starting place. Because of serialized storytelling, for me, all the writers have to know everything about everyone's episodes. So everyone's in the room breaking the stories. When I say broken, it means we know what the story's gonna be. We have it on a whiteboard, often putting lines of dialogue up on the board. And we say, here's the general parameters of what that story's gonna be. Again, it's these stepping stones for the characters, where they need to get them and how we're gonna get them to where we want them at the end. And we know how it's gonna end. There is no more horrible or wonderful place to be than a writing room. You sit there and stare at a blank board and none of you has a freaking idea. You just, it's painful. You're falling asleep. You're trying to come up with an idea. You don't have one. And then someone says one thing. It's not the right thing. But it gets someone else thinking, you know, okay, what if you do that, but you do it this way. And then you start, you're bouncing around ideas and you're on this train and then you come up with the idea and it's just, there is no better feeling in the world. Getting the idea. It is so exciting. Just when the inspiration is there, either when you're off on your own writing or when you're in a, a writing room with a talented group of writers, it's drugs. It's, it's a high you can't get from drugs. As a storyteller, that's what keeps you going is you're always chasing that high, that the, the creative juice, the connection with creativity and, and you know, the, the connection with your own inspiration or someone else's inspiration is just, it's just uh, so exciting. It gets you through the hell that is the slog of, it took hours and hours to get to that one five minute joy of, excitement, you know. Then you have the, the next tie of watching Kristen Ritter perform it and blowing your mind. Like even that takes it to a whole nother level. Like you didn't know you were such a good writer. <laughs> it just made you look so freaking good, you know. And you, you have Carrie Ann Moss and Rachel Taylor. The delivery of a certain line can make it from one thing to another. And everybody who participates, every single person, what the character wears, you know, Jessica's classic outfit, jeans and jacket, you know, that was really a collaboration between Kristen Ritter and our costume designer. And, you know, Kristen, you know, she would just try on 
things and see what felt like Jessica Jones. So then you have that as a writer and you, you can write to it. The show is first written in the writing room and then it's written on the page and then it's written by everybody who's on it. It's a wonderful dance. People go off to write their outlines. They're walking off with a version of an outline on those. They get notes from me first, then they get notes from the room. The writer goes off again, and then they get notes from the studio, and then they get notes from the network. And then the writer is finally sent off to script. So there's, this, there's quite a bit of feedback. And honestly, with Marvel and Netflix, it was a good process, particularly in the second season. You know, Once the show had proven itself, they got a little less nervous about stuff, made it a, an easier process. But Jeff Loeb in particular was my best source for feedback. One of the challenges we faced putting together the first season of Jessica Jones was that Luke Cage was a primary relationship in the first season. Initially, he was in every episode. He was very much part of the A story. But then Marvel realized, and everyone along with them, that Luke Cage was going to be its own series, of course. And... All the origin story, all of the going deep into Luke Cage's life, that was all for his series, not for ours. And yet we were introducing him. So, so much of the story we had come up with for him was now being cut out. Initially, we freaked out, but then it was sort of like, actually, for our series, it worked so much better. Him being much more of a man of mystery, a man of few words. It was sexier for him and, and Jessica. And the story is called Jessica Jones. It's not called Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. You know, so it really ended up focusing the storytelling on Jessica herself. So that was one of the storytelling challenges. The other one was not dissimilar. The original best friend was Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. So we were building a whole storyline around her. And then word came down that, oh no, she's gonna have her own movies. Now the question came down to who's the best friend? The folks at Marvel went through their library of characters, and it is a deep library. I mean, they've got thousands of characters. Megan Branner over at Marvel came up with, with Patsy, little known character. I mean, she had her own canon and such, but she turns into eventually Hellcat. And we realized that that was actually better for our storytelling to have a best friend who does not have powers, but she has everything else. Wealth, beauty, charm, career, everything that Jessica isn't. And Jessica is everything that she isn't. Much better than if it had been Carol Danvers. And it also, again, grounded our series in a real person. Twilight was the same thing. You know, there were characters that you couldn't violate who they were. You could invent to a certain degree, but there are guardrails in terms of what they can do, what powers they have, what their backstories are. You know, you really have to, in, in that case, in Twilight and Marvel, you have to honor a lot of that. So it creates limitations, but it also gives you some guidelines. The room may have been going for almost a year. Some of the higher level writers were extended so that they could go on over to New York to be on set and produce. I always have a writer on set for every single scene shot. Sometimes directors aren't as crazy about that. <laughs> but writers are the, the constant in television. Traditionally, directors rotate. 
because you can't direct an episode and then go and post it, edit it. You have to rotate directors. Some people have managed not to, but for me, the writer is the constant. That's why one of the things I love about writing for television is that writers do have creative control. You really get to be able to express your art as opposed to in features where you hand in the script and it's crickets, you know, they're off doing a thing. It becomes very complicated as a showrunner to be writing as you're shooting, because if you're shooting, you're also editing. So you have three different arms of production. You have the, the writing room and the writing going on. At the same time, you have the production going on and people actually shooting and you're rewriting on the set for myriad reasons. And then you're also in editing and that's a full-time job in and of itself. The job of a showrunner is not doable by oneself. The team is everything. So I had the great good fortune to have an extraordinarily strong team on all three seasons of Jessica Jones. The writer-producers that I had that were able to go and be on set, I trusted them completely to be able to deliver what needed to be shot. I wish I could have gone and spent every day on the set, but that just wasn't possible. And then you have your, you know, your partners at the studio are crucial that you can hand some of it to them. Ultimately, both the, the gift and the curse of being a showrunner is you are responsible for every frame every word, every line, every everything. So at least that's how I do it, which means that I'm a control freak. It, not necessarily a good trait when you're show writing because you have to be able to delegate. I delegated to the degree that I could creatively. It's nonstop. You wake up, you're in the mode. I go every day to the office where the writing room is, where my office is, where the editing suites are. I'm dealing with phone calls from production whatever crisis is happening there. My writer-producer is calling me saying, you know, this actor or that actress wants to change this line, but that you change that line, that screws us in episode 10, whatever it is, you know. Again, we are the keepers of the story. So actors, directors, they don't know what we have planned for episode 10. So it's very, very important for the writer be there to guide. Um, I'm dealing with Sean Callery, Emmy Award-winning composer, just tremendous talent. So he and I are, are working on the score. He's, he's doing stuff and then I give feedback. It's all about people doing the jobs and am I being there to give feedback or if I have to rewrite whatever it is. I'm really the last person on that cut. It's a seven day a week job. First season of a show is particularly exhausting because people who are working with you don't have as much of a sense of what's going on in your head because it hasn't been done yet. You know, you haven't actually shot anything yet or you haven't completed an episode yet. You don't know what it sounds like. And, you know, or I'm in the mixing room and, uh, you know, mixing is, is when you're with all your sound people in post-production and you're deciding how big a sound it is when Jessica hits somebody in the face. Does it sound like someone hitting this slab of beef and then amplified and reverberated? Or does it sound more like a real hit? I go to color timing. That's a huge one. You're deciding the palette of the show. I had a tremendous DP, director of photography. We shot all of this. Manuel built here. Beautiful, beautiful shooting. But then I get into the color timing. And I'm like, well, that's too dark. Well, that's too light. Or, you know, it's too saturated. Not saturated enough. I want my objective with the look and the sound and the storytelling was, you know, the storytelling itself is pretty bleak. I didn't want the world to be bleak. You know, there are some shows that are tremendous 
but you go and you turn them on and look like bleak worlds. And it's just that much harder to get yourself to watch it. I wanted the world to be beautiful. So it'd be a world you'd actually want to visit, have a cinematic quality to it. That doesn't mean it's pretty. Pretty is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about rich and you know depth and shadow, but it's just that it's a painting, you know. It's the most gratifying creative work I've ever done, show running, and the absolutely most exhausting. When hiring writers to be in a writer's room, what I'm looking for is people who are different than I am. I know a whole lot of being a middle-aged, middle-class white woman. I don't need another one to come in you know, and tell me what that experience is. But someone who is coming from a different world altogether, that's what's important to me. People with different backgrounds, with stories to tell. If you come to a meeting with me and you say, well, my, my life is really great. I, you know, my parents are still together and nothing terrible happened. It's like, okay, bye. You know, what is your story to tell? Either you're not really self-examining enough or you're boring. So <laughs> I like you know, damaged people, people with stories to tell, you know, what is your damage and what are you doing with it? Or if it's, it doesn't have, it's not to say damage, but it's just life experience. If you've gone from high school to film school and, and then to graduate film school and you've never actually gone out into the world and lived, you got to worry about what story you have to tell. Like, go join the, the, the Peace Corps or get a law degree or travel for years. Or, you know, there's just something to write about beyond your own sort of narcissistic safe little world. Being a writer is so much about exposing yourself to experiences and then exposing your experience to other people. If you're a writer who's been honest long enough, then people can kind of look back at all of your work and they'll go, they'll know who you are which is a terrifying thought. But if you're not being honest, you're not telling the truth, if you're not really being raw and open, what are you doing? You know? What are you doing? In the hiring of anyone, whether it be production crew and, and post actors, but most importantly, the writers, because you're in a room with these people eight hours a day in very tight quarters. What I always do is I, I vet everyone. I vet everyone. I call at least two of the former employees, sometimes three, and I'm asking, is this person, is this writer? Am I going to want to be in a room with this person? Spending more time with this person than I do with my husband, you know? Am I going to like this person? And that alone, if I'm hearing stuff that, you know, well, he's a terrific writer, but kind of a negative Nelly in the room, I'm like, that's it. You're out. I don't, I don't need that. I need I want people who are positive, who are can-do, who don't just shoot down ideas. That's not useful. It's not useful to shoot down ideas. What is useful is drafting off that idea and saying, well, maybe not that, but what about this? Never, ever shoot down an idea unless you don't have another one to pitch. I vet very carefully writers. You know, to some degree, it's a crapshoot because it's a blind date with all these folks. And I think that's why people tend to hire people they've worked with before. I certainly did. Because you already know you like them. You already know you can rely on them. And I explained what a showrunner does and how difficult it is. Having people that you know and you can rely on is key. Unfortunately, that's also why writers' rooms have traditionally been so white and male, is because it sort of perpetuates. It's you, you, you hire the guys you know, and then they become your team and it becomes crucial to have them there that you can do your job.
So it is a big risk when you reach outside of your circle. And I'm glad to say that people are doing that a great deal more now. Unfortunately, very late in the game, but it's happening. And I have been able to do that, fortunately. It's done nothing but benefit every show I've done. I will not hire someone who has never been in a writer's room. If I'm going to give someone their first shot, more than likely they've been a writer's assistant in the room. The writer's assistant is the one who takes all the notes. So they're typing nonstop for eight hours at the fastest pace imaginable and tracking all that story is an incredibly hard job to do. It is also where a great deal of us find our entry-level writers. We start handing them scenes and seeing how they do, or we let them pitch ideas and try to get them integrated into the room. If someone has never been in a room before, it's very, very hard for them to follow because you've got seven people throwing out, eight people, however many people you've got, Throwing ideas out is utter chaos. You've got to be able to track what the story is you're telling. You have to be able to create on your feet, have an idea and say it, and not pitch something that was shot down five minutes ago because you weren't tracking the actual story. And now you've just wasted all our time repitching someone else's idea. Not all writers are meant for writers' rooms. There are a lot of writers who think best alone in their offices on their keyboards. Many, many writers do it that way. They should not be on a show that's room heavy. There are many shows that don't rely on rooms, don't use rooms the way I do. My rooms are always very time consuming and they're full days. You know, If you get distracted in rooms like that, if you can't think with that much noise going on, you're probably better off on a show that uses a room less, if at all. But for me, when you're doing serialized storytelling, you really need to be in a room. You can't just assign episodes to different writers. You don't know what they're going to be until you've broken out the whole story. The amazing thing about television is that it's so collaborative. The worst thing about television is that it's so collaborative. But if you're someone who really feeds on creative collaboration, television is a great place for you. The book I'm going to write is, here's what not to do in Hollywood, because I've made virtually every mistake known to television writers. <laughs> for me, there are a couple things, but what separates writers from aspiring writers is tenacity. You know, it is hard. It's a hard freaking business. And you will get kicked in the teeth. In my case, it's repeatedly. In other cases, you know, it's down the line. But you will get kicked in the teeth. And you will be down on the floor bleeding. And you have to be able to say, tomorrow's going to be a better one. I guess very Annie. But... I'm telling you, it's not going to be better. It may be, it may take a week. It may take three months. It may, you know, it may be tomorrow. You don't know. But if you can keep picking yourself up off the ground, sitting your butt in that chair, it will happen. I call it delusional optimism. And the other, one of the great mistakes I, I made early on, and I think a lot of young writers do, is you don't yet have faith that you're going to come up with another idea. So you cling on to the one idea you've come up with. And you're, if you're in a writer's room, you're like shoving that in people's faces. And, and you know, you're forcing the room runner to say no to you a lot of times. And that's just not energy or time that that room runner has. So the writers who I love to work with are the ones who, you know, they pitch an idea. They're really passionate about it. They may, may pitch it twice. And then you say, you know, that's just not the road we're going down. And they say, okay, next idea. And they're just, you know, they're idea machines. 
those are the people you collect in your circle. You want people who are idea machines. They're not getting pissy when you reject an idea. They're not hanging on to that idea in the most annoying way. I did all that shit when I was coming up and it did not help me. It did not help me advance quickly. But there's one thing that I did really wisely in my career, if I may say so myself. Very early on, I formed a writer's group with my best friend, fellow writer, Dana Barada. We met in a class, AFI, just a basic screenwriting class, and we connected a lot. And we ended up finding other people, other writers whose work we liked and whose feedback we liked. We met every Wednesday, 7 p.m., rotated who brought the pizza. There was no booze. It was not a social thing. This was a professional gathering. You're not gathering to just bitch and complain. You're gathering because you have work. You're bringing in pages. You're bringing in an idea. And then we divvy up the time of the, you know, however long we have to make sure that everyone, everyone's work gets discussed. And it's our own little writing room. But we had that going for 20 years. And most recently, in the last actually several months, we started it again. And by now, all of our colleagues we brought in were, are all showrunners in their own right. They're, there's no one in there looking for a job. It's all, you know, you really want your peers so that you have a very safe space. You invite people in whose work is not going to be painful to read every week, you know. But the more important thing is whose feedback is valuable. Who's good at helping you out? Who's good at the feedback? And just doing it religiously, we did it for couple of decades. Sadly, my friend passed away actually about two months ago, but she left me with a gift of this writer's group. So that's great. I love storytelling. I'm just, I'm an addict. I love watching it. I love reading it and I love doing it. I get so immersed in the characters and the excitement of coming up with new ideas. You know, a lot of people ask about one, how do you write a female superhero? And the answer is you don't. You write a superhero. You write a character that is informed by her gender, by her experience. Being a woman in the world is an experience. You, you have certain experiences that you bring that, that shape your character, just as being a man or being a person of color shapes you. The character is not defined by her gender, it's informed by it. Yeah, every once in a while, I'll, I'll, if I'm really stuck, I'll try, okay, what would a man say if he's doing this? And vice versa, if I'm writing a man, I'm stuck, I say, well, what would a woman say in this situation? Just always making sure I'm writing character and not a single trait. That often happens. The black character is, that's his character, he's black. <laughs> the woman character, the female character, that's her, her character, she's a woman. That's not a character. And that's one of the things I loved about the, the comic in the first place was he was a fully fleshed out character. It was not about her being a woman. There was a, some, you know, some path down there, but Ryan and Michael really just created a, a whole character. And then you introduce the backstory of rape and PTSD and domestic violence and all that. One of the questions I get asked a lot is, how did you deal with taking on the issue of rape? I didn't. To be honest with you, there was, you know, Kilgrave is suggested in Kilgrave a variation on rape. It was, again, something that informed Jessica's character. 
inform the state that she was in when we were introduced to her in season one. We never walked into the writer's room going, what issue about rape can we take on today? (laughs) It was always about what is Jessica's arc in a story? What is, where is her starting place? Where is she going? What is her experience here? So if you're being honest to the character, if you're being honest to a, a real experience, and you're always digging into your own life and experience and feeling like if I were Jessica and I had gone through this, here's what I might do. Here's the real. So in staying authentic to a character who has that in her background, it fortunately became a really important series for a lot of people, for a lot of survivors. They felt like we really had been honest about it and tackled it well. And I was, that was perhaps maybe the most gratifying thing in my career. We didn't set out to do an issue series. And I think if you do set out to do an issue series, you just killed it right off the bat. You know, it just happened to be a part of this character and told that story. We told the story of the survivor to have the show win a Peabody to have all those extraordinary things written about it when it first came out. It coincided absolutely coincidentally with the Me Too movement. You always hope you can move the needle a little bit, that you can, you know, that you have something to say and that contribute to the conversation. You rarely do, (laughs) you rarely get to, but we managed to do it on Jessica Jones and that if I do nothing else the rest of my career, although God willing I will, that'll do it for me. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.